3, starting in verse 19. Romans 3, starting in verse 19. Yes, God's blessing and the ministry of his word this morning. Dear Lord, we thank you again for the gift of this Lord's Day and how you've set it apart for your people to not only gather in fellowship, Lord, but more importantly to worship you as a family and to hear from you through your word. And so, Lord, we just pray that it's your spirit that is speaking, Lord, this morning. And give us ears to hear what you have to say to the church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Romans 3, verses 19 through 22 reads, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. How many superhero movie fans in here? Got a few, maybe? Got a few? Nah. A lot of action films, sci-fi films? Star Wars. Genre? Okay. You know, I was thinking about those things. Uh, you know, most superhero and sci-fi and action films, if you notice that there's usually two characteristics that's common to them all, at least with respect to the, uh, to the plot. Um, usually there's a major crisis that's in each one of them that develops and that crisis is always a threat to humanity in such a way that there's nothing that humanity can do to stop it. Right? They're always on a collision course with something that's going to destroy them. And additionally, if you ever think about it, though that trouble that's coming is usually perpetrated by some type of a villain, right? Uh, you know, to Timmy's point, we have Star Wars, right? And you've got your villain of Darth Vader and Emperor Palpatine. Um, Wonder Woman, you've got Ares, the god of war. Or even if you are along the lines of the Lord of the Rings genre, you've got the Dark Lord Sauron and his whole army of orcs. In every case, if left unchallenged, those forces of evil are going to end up destroying everything that's good, and whatever's left is going to be held under their subjection, under their enslavement. And so as a result, unless a hero enters the scene to vanquish that foe and relieve the tension that's being created by that whole crisis, the fate of the world in each one of those scenarios is, is essentially doomed, right? Um, there's absolutely no hope of victory and no hope for a joy-filled future when you're just thinking of that cosmic catastrophe that's coming upon them. And, you know, in many ways, that same motif is at work within the scriptures. Uh, you know, we have in the Old Testament, we have a lot of Old Testament villains, don't we? We have Pharaoh, and we have Goliath, and we have the Babylonians. Um, and that's no less true than even something like the book of Romans that we're reading. 
right? As much as it's not telling a story that has villains, there is villainy at work. There's something that is happening that Paul is making clear to us in the first two and a half chapters of Romans that is catastrophic for us, right? As we've already worked through it so far, the first two and a half chapters, Paul's made clear that mankind is truly in a dire situation. And unless something dramatic happens, they have no hope of survival. Mankind is doomed. If you were to just stop reading the first two and a half chapters of Romans, it's bad news. Um, starting in verse 18 of chapter 1 and going all the way through verse 20 of chapter 3, Paul's been making the case of this characteristic of the human race. We are totally sinful, we are incapable of pleasing God, and we currently are abiding under his wrath. That's a doomsday scenario. There's no good news in that. There, and it's been tough even trying to preach through that, because if you remember, every time I've, I've come up to talk through, this path, through these passages, there's been very little, little glimmer of hope just in the text itself. Left to themselves, the Jew and the Gentile are alike guilty, and neither of them is going to escape the judgment that is coming from God. As we said, their situation is totally hopeless, and we saw that in verse 20 of what I just read a moment ago. Because look at what Paul writes in verse, uh, Romans 3, verse 20. He says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. No human being. That's everyone. No one is justified in God's sight by the works of the law. Now, if you think about it, that's absolutely devastating news to anyone that's counting on their niceness, or their kindness, or their really good works, their really good deeds, their, their neighborliness. If anyone's counting on those things alone to be set right before God's justice, they are in huge trouble based on that verse. Because there it says nothing that they do can justify them before God. You know, years ago I had a friend at work. Um, he was clearly not a believer, and we had some discussions regarding things of God. Uh, and I remember that he told me that, that he wasn't afraid of death because he was convinced that when he died and he came before the Lord, he says, he and God were going to work things out. That's what he actually said to me. He said, we're going to work things out. And in a similar way, I think most people that are decent and are good in, in life, um, I think they're convinced that somehow their goodness, that what they are living, their good deeds are going to be enough if they'll weigh anything bad that they've done. And that God is going to be obligated essentially to usher them into his kingdom. Their goodness is going to prevail. They're counting on their good deeds to appease God and win his favor. But unfortunately, that is an assumption that treats God like a common man, right? That can be negotiated with. We, we put ourselves on par with God as just another guy that we're going to do some horse trading with. You know, God, I wasn't all that bad. Come on, look at my life. Go, let me compare it to Hitler. I mean, I was no Hitler, <laughs> right? That's always the one that we go to. My God's crazy. Absolutely. <laughs> and so 
in that respect, uh, you know, we come before God and we think that he's going to be won over by these few moments of, of our noble living, if you will. But as we just read in verses 19 and 20 of Romans chapter 3, Paul blows that whole idea to smithereens. I mean, it's poof! Because he says that no one by their works is going to be justified. And that we're justified meaning declared righteous in God's eyes. Declared right before the law of God. No one can be justified in that way. In other words, when we stand before God's judgment seat at the end of our days, in order to receive his favorable ruling, we have to present evidence that we have lived perfectly. Perfectly, not only in deed, but even in motive. That everything we've done has been done with a pure and sincere heart. Without failure. And in that, by presenting that type of a track record, we can only hope that we're going to have uh, God's blessing. And, and be seen as innocent of any crime against him or his justice. But we know that not a one of us is able to do that. All of us, anything that, that any of us would be able to present at that time, all we're going to be able to show is a track record of deep and consistent failure. It, it, it's just a reality. We all know that at some level we all fall short. Because the reality is no one, not one of us, has ever done a perfectly holy thing. R.C. Sproul has said it, and I've commented it from this position before. Everything we do is always tainted with a pound of flesh. There's something within us that, as much as we're sometimes not even aware of it, there's some self-serving reason that we do the good things that we do. Compared to other men, sure, our lives might look decent. They might look really good and virtuous. But compared to the standard that we're given in God's word, the holiness of God, once we use that as our standard, we can see how we've all fallen short. And that's exactly how it's supposed to be. And in fact, Paul even makes that point in verse 19, right? When we just read, by the, by the law itself, he says, every, every mouth will be stopped before the Lord. Every, it, it indicts every one of us, the law as it's presented in God's word, because that's exactly what it's supposed to do. It's not, it, the law does not allow us to live in this delusion and, or illusion that we are better than we are. We talk about tough love, you know, what, whatever Tim wrote to CJ was probably tough for CJ to hear, but it was also the most loving thing that could be done for the man because he needs to hear that truth. And that's exactly what we have in the law. And the reason that every mouth is going to be stopped is because we need to be reminded of the reality that everything we do is tainted by sin and it's deemed unacceptable. And so if we're counting on our works to make us right before God, essentially what that's like is us jumping out of an airplane with a parachute on our back but no pull cord. We're, we're flying headlong to the, to the ground. We know that if that parachute doesn't open, we're done. And yet that's what the man or the woman who's relying on their works before God is like. They're flying through the air towards the ground with a parachute on their back that has no chance of opening. Or it's like the guy that's in a rowboat. 
He's without oars, and he's 25 yards from the crest of Niagara Falls. We see a situation like that, and we say, it's over. <laughs> There's no turning back that situation. He's doomed. Now, for those of you guys who remember, who was old enough, who was old as I am uh, from Monday Night Football, it used to be Dandy Don Meredith. <laughs> and there'd be a football team that's making their way. They're trying to make a comeback. And they do that last pass with 30 seconds left towards the end zone, but it's intercepted. And Dandy Don Meredith would go into We would sing the song, The Party's Over. <laughs> I mean, the game's over at that point, and that's exactly what's happening to anybody that's relying simply on their works to be right in God's eyes. In that scenario, there's no longer any remedy that's available. They've passed the, po the point of no return, and their fate is sealed. Now, let's go back to the, to the movie motif that I started with, right? If the final scene of our lives were to end that way, where the crisis swallows us and the villain walks away victorious, then everyone watching that movie would be pretty distressed and demoralized, right? I mean, when we're watching evil have its way, whether it's on a movie or in life, um, when it has the upper hand and it shows no sign of weakening, and actually it shows every sign that it's going to have the victory, that's an emotionally painful experience to go through. When we see evil marching on and winning, that's hard, extremely hard to watch, and it sucks the wind right out of our sails. You know, going back to the to Lord of the Rings, it's like you you have this uh, this scene in in the second movie where there's the attack of the orcs upon Helm's Deep. You know, the good people are all hiding in this fortress. And they're thinking it's going to withstand against this assault. But then that one guy breaks through that, with that bomb and he blows that whole outer support, that whole outer embankment up so that the orcs start making their way into the city. And the city is overrun. And at that moment, you say, oh my gosh, evil is winning. It's downright depressing and demoralizing. And so the reason why we love superhero movies, right, is because in the end, the superhero wins. He comes in, he saves the day. And, and when that happens, that tension is relieved, right? In the midst of a movie, if you're really engrossed in a movie, all of a sudden you're captivated, you're right in, like, like being on a roller coaster at the scariest moment. But then you get that relief when the superhero starts to show signs of victory. It's in the midst of that moment when the tension is greatest and it appears that the bad guy is going to complete his full conquest when the hero steps onto the scene, all of a sudden we're lifted up. And that happens in Lord of the Rings, right? At the end of that battle, what happens? Gandalf is seen at the top of the hill with the 2,000 horsemen led by Aomir. And all of a sudden you've got this light that begins to shine into the darkness. And they come down and the enemy is thwarted. We love that kind of thing. And why I build all of that up at this moment is because that's precisely what the Lord does for us through Paul in the verses we just read. Because look how verse 21 begins. But now... Okay, verse 20 said, you have no chance of being justified before the Lord by your works. But now, with those two words, the situation is completely transformed. You know, it's like a child who's 
broken something precious in the house and they know they're in trouble, right? And, they, and the parent comes to them, you broke that plate. And inside you're thinking, am I going to get a whooping? <laughs> and then the parent says, but I love you. And I'm going to have grace on you this time. You're just going to work it off. <laughs> you know, the, 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 uh, the discipline in, in terms of the, of, the, uh, of the paddle to the back is, is not going to take place. <clears throat> so that's what we have happen here. But now, with these two words, that the mid-course correction that we were hoping for, Right? We're, we're heading towards Niagara Falls, and yet, with these two words, the Lord writes our boat. He puts us in a different direction. We're on that doomsday collision course with disaster, but those two words avert it. They remove the tension. And what is it that brings the relief that is so desperately needed? It's those two simple words that these two words are pointing to the remedy. And the remedy, as we see in verse 21, is the righteousness of God. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That word that we cast around in our prayers, and we, we hear about it in, in our study of God's word all the time, the righteousness of God. Righteousness is talking about the absolute perfection of God's being and his characters. Everything that is right is bound in the nature and essence of who God is. And so, God's righteousness, it's perfectly pure. Right? We know from 1 John, it says that God is light and in him is what? No darkness at all. There's no hint of evil or darkness in God whatsoever. And so what that means is that because he is so pure, his righteousness can never be corrupted. It's always pristine. It's always pure. But then secondly, the scripture tells us that God's righteousness is everlasting. Isaiah 51.8 says, My righteousness will be forever in my salvation to all generations. What that means is that God's righteousness can never be exhausted. So it's pure and it's never exhaustible. And perfect righteousness is the only state of being that's acceptable to God. And so it's the very thing that we need to enter into his heavenly kingdom and to abide with him. Without God's righteousness, we are sinful. We are vile in God's eyes. And yet, with God's righteousness, that vileness, sin, and shame is removed. And it's covered by his perfection. That purity and that everlasting abundance is for us now. And there's no one that did things better, I think, like this in terms of word pictures than Martin Luther. He was quite the character. But he describes this, and I don't mean to be offensive to anyone, but this is Martin Luther's example. It's called Luther's Dunghill. And what he described was he's saying that in God's eyes, because of our sinfulness and because of our radically corrupted nature where we are violently against him, in our unregenerate state, he sees us as a, a pile of manure. I mean, that's a really hard thing to say, right? To think that God looks at his creation that way. 
sinful human beings, yes, who have rebelled against him, yes, who would kill him if they could, which they did when he came. God views us as a pile of manure. But that's the bad news, right? That's Romans 1.18 through Romans 3.20. Now the good news, as Luther would put it, that pile of manure all of a sudden is covered by the freshness of the first winter snow. You ever look out in the morning on, on the first day where it really snows and it's beautiful. Everything is just pristine. Nothing's been touched. It's, it happens overnight. You look outside. I mean, it's a gorgeous picture. What Luther was getting at was that God's righteousness given to us is exactly that. It's covering the horribleness, the vileness of that mound of manure. And how he sees is the pristine whiteness of his son in our lives. It's the righteousness of Christ. And so at that point, when God looks upon that covered mound, he can rightly and justly, before the law, say, acceptable. That is a beautiful, beautiful thing, that mound right there. It is covered with the whiteness of righteousness. One of the points that's most often emphasized in Christian teaching is our forgiveness, right? We understand that our sins are an offense to God and that it's the shed blood of Jesus on the cross that cleanses us from all of our sins. We, you know, our, uh, Timmy and, and Dustin lead us in that. Uh, what can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So we know that we are washed by the blood of Christ. And it's absolutely true in that we must confess our sin and receive the forgiveness from God that comes by trusting in the Lamb of God who is what? Given to take away the sin of the world. So that's, that is a huge part of the gospel, our forgiveness. But forgiveness of sins is not the only thing we need for salvation. If we were cleansed of our sin only, we would be innocent. We'd be a clean slate. Uh, but we'd be lacking something. Innocence is not enough to grant us entry into God's kingdom. For example, if you have a player that is inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, he didn't get there by just sitting in the dugout for 20 seasons and not doing anything. He just showed up every day with his, with his uniform on. The reason why a person is inducted into the Hall of Fame is because they've had a consistent career of measurable contribution that was above and beyond everyone else. It's something that they did that merited them being set apart from your regular ball player, right? They brought value to their position and to their team. It was a measurable contribution. And in the same way, we need a performance that earns a spot for us in the kingdom of God. For you see, despite everything that you may have heard, it's actually not true that we aren't saved by works. We, in fact, are saved by works. No. Hold on to your heresy meters. Hold on. Who's that rock? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, you could say, well, Mark, what about, what's, what about verse 20? What's he saying there then? By the works of the law, no man will be justified before God. What are you talking about? Well, 
Here's the key. We aren't saved by our works, mm -hmm. but we are saved by the works of another, mm -hmm. our hero, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we're covered with the righteousness of God, we're covered by the perfect purity and righteous works of the Lord Jesus. And in that way, when God looks at us, he not only sees our innocence because we've been fully forgiven, but he also sees our merit, our value, because he sees Christ's perfect work done on our behalf. That's a really important thing for us to grasp, that, that Jesus didn't just come to die on a cross for us. He lived the life we could never live. That's why he is our everything. That's, and that's why we look to be in Christ, because it's then that God sees that perfection and grants us entrance into his presence. 2 Corinthians 5.21 just is such a, a great summary of this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the, one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. The one who was not that pile of manure, he made himself to be one who took on that manure on our behalf so that we could have that pure white blanket of snow covered that comes from him. You know, it's like, it's, it, it's, a, it's a really bad example, but Halloween's coming up, right? And you're going to see kids running around in different costumes. And a kid shows up at your front door, and he's dressed up as Spider-Man, right? We see Spider-Man. We don't see the kid, you know? We don't see Jude. We see Spider-Man. And in, in, a, in a really, and that's a really small, poor example in a sense, but that's what's happening when God looks at us in our sinfulness, but we are covered in the righteousness of Christ, he doesn't see us in that respect. He sees the perfection of Jesus. We are robed in him. We are in Christ. And he delights in that. It's the righteousness of God in Christ that we wear like a garment and that makes us acceptable to God and grants us entrance into his glorious kingdom. You know, I was thinking about the verses of... Um, of Psalm uh, 24, verses 4 and 5. I'll read them to you here. And uh, let me just read them first. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul up to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now, you know, you read that verse, right? This is, this is before Christ comes. You read that verse. I think that that would be one of the most intimidating verses to read. It says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. I could never live up to that standard. I don't know anyone reading that verse that could say they could live up to that standard. And so we would think in our minds, my gosh, I'll never ascend to the hill of the Lord. But because of the Lord Jesus, that impossibility is absolutely made possible for us. He performed those impossibilities on our behalf and then credited the merit of that performance to our account, if you will. 
so that we too can ascend that holy hill with him, right? God allows our ascent and accepts us because he sees the cleanness of Christ's hands and he sees the purity of Christ's heart when he looks upon us. I mean, you remember what the Father says about Jesus at his baptism. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. I mean, everything that Jesus did pleased the Father. And so there's an account in, in the Gospel of Matthew, I think, that helps illustrate this for us. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew 22, starting in verse 1. And I'm going to read the full passage. I'm not going to exposit all of it, though. We're going to just focus in on the tail end, but you'll see why. But I think by reading it in, in its entirety, it'll, it'll help us to understand the, the full context of where we're going. Matthew 22, starting in verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding to come to the feast. But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So the guest who came to the wedding without the wedding coat on. He assumed he could show up in whatever wedding attire he wanted and still be allowed to take part in everything that was going on. But upon arrival, he quickly learns how wrong he was. What I found interesting was that in this passage, he was rendered speechless, much like anybody coming before the tribunal of God standing in the works of the law. It says the law stops every mouth. He's found speechless here, too. See, because there was a dress code being enforced. A special wedding garment was needed. But because he didn't meet that standard, not only was he thrown out, but he was punished severely because what he did was an insult, an insult and affront to the king. Now, we understand this to a certain extent, don't we? I mean, even in our local communities, there are dress codes. Uh, you walk into a diner, what's their motto? No shirt, no service, right? You, either, you at least got to have a shirt on. Um, or even just taking it even medically, you know, you, not anybody can just waltz into a hospital operating room, right? 
everything has to be purified. You have to go through a, a, a proper cleansing process because you want to minimize any chance of there being any infection. So if that's true about gaining entrance into some places in our fallen world, how much more is that needful with respect to entrance into the God of the universe, the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel? And so in light of that truth, that is the great news about this passage that we're just going through in Romans. Again, Paul spent the first two and a half chapters of this book telling us the bad news about how sinful we are. How in and of ourselves we have absolutely no hope of appeasing God in our efforts. Essentially, the enemy of our sin has his foot on our throat. And there's nothing we can do to get out from underneath that. I know that, that Dustin teaches martial arts, but even Dustin doesn't know a move that would get anyone out from underneath that grip. Sin has us. We're done. We're sunk. But again, those words, verse 21, but now. They're the two of the most awesome words in the entire Bible because they restore hope and they signify that in the face of certain death, victory is actually possible. And how is victory possible? Through the righteousness of God that has been manifested apart from the law. The very thing that we need in order to be accepted in God's presence and to be welcomed by him has been manifested. What that, what's that word manifest? It means it's been made known. It's been made publicly aware. It's, you know, it's not hidden or shrouded. It's not some mystery. And he even, he even says here that the, that the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, they were pointing to God's righteousness the whole time. It's not like it was hidden there either. It's just that now, in the gospel, it is absolutely clear. It has been manifested for all of us to see. And Paul says that in, in the first chapter of Romans, doesn't he? When he talks about the gospel, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and for the Greek, for in it, what? The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The gospel reveals this awesome message about the purity, the, the righteousness of God that he's given to us, his enemies. The everla everlasting perfection and purity of God is revealed to us in the pronouncement that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that, so that he would be the substitutionary atonement for our sin debt and the substitutionary performer for our works debt. Keep those two in mind. He doesn't just atone for our sins, but he, he atones, if you will. He performs for the, us the works we could never do. He paid for our sin by becoming sin on the cross and receiving our wrath that, that was due to us because of our sin. And then he paid for our works debt by fulfilling all righteousness. He was perfectly obedient to the Father. He even says that in the high priestly prayer before he goes to the cross. He says, Father, I have done everything you have given me to do. Not one of us can say that, but the Lord Jesus could. Mm -hmm. And then he goes even one step further by making it available to mankind in a, who is in desperate need of this righteousness, right? Look at verse 22. This is, how, this is how we receive this righteousness, this purity that he's been talking about. How does he do it? 
It's made accessible to us in this way. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Faith is the means. It's the, it's the way that we receive this purity that God has for us. Notice that faith isn't the basis. It isn't the reason that we receive God's righteousness. Righteousness isn't earned or merited because we did the work of believing. All right? That's not the basis for it. What faith is, it's an instrument. It's the conduit, if you will, that connects the righteousness of God into our lives, into our souls. It's almost like, if, if you will, it's almost like, a, like an IV. That, that, the, the IV is, is, is just an instrument that connects the, the, the blood into the body that needs the transfusion. So by that, by faith, we receive the righteousness from the very one that we put our hope in and our trust in, and that is the Lord Jesus, our true superhero. So as we wind this down, we've got three really good piece, pieces of really good news as a result of all this, right? First, what this tells us is that the means of receiving God's righteousness is exclusive, right? It's only through the gift of faith. That's the only way you can receive the righteousness of God is by the gift of faith, by believing and trusting God and his word about what the scriptures tell us about Jesus, there's no other way to receive it. We don't receive it by doing anything. We don't receive it by martyrdom. We don't receive it by sacrament. We receive it by faith. And what that means, why that's really good, is we don't have to expend extra effort trying to earn it or to work for it. It's been given to us as a gift to trust that that is how we receive Christ's righteousness. Then second, the object of faith of that faith which allows us to receive God's righteousness is exclusive. It is only through faith in whom? In Jesus Christ. So it's exclusive in that it's only by faith, and it's exclusive in that it's only directed in one direction, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no list that you have to come up with of possible saviors, of possible superheroes, and go through and figure out the merits of each one and figure out, oh, okay, uh, you know, I, I, I like Muhammad, um, Buddha's pretty good, um, you know, Joseph Smith had something good to say, blows all of that. There's no one else you have to turn to. He just cuts right to the chase. Says, don't, don't worry about anyone else. Just look to my son, the Lord Jesus. That exclusivity is such a grace to us. And then lastly, the opportunity to receive this righteous is both exclusive and inclusive. It's exclusive in what? It's only for all who believe. Everyone who believes is going to receive this righteousness. But it's also inclusive in that, notice he says, for all who believe. That means Jew or Gentile. That means anyone. That's who the gospel is to be proclaimed to so that all of us have that opportunity to hear about this righteousness that can be ours. God is not holding that back from anyone. It is to be proclaimed <coughs> to the whole world. And we, in this room, are living examples of having received the, the fruit of God's Spirit in our lives working that led us to faith. So this truth about the imputed righteousness of God through faith in the person of Christ it is the most incredible message and news ever revealed to mankind. 
this is the gospel that saves man from judgment eternally and that frees man to live in reverent and joyful obedience to our God and King in the here and now. He does both. It's here and then and the time to come. He's got both ends covered. The enemy of sin and depravity made our situation desperately hopeless. One that we'd never be able to escape from, but God in his kindness stepped onto the scene and our hero, the Lord Jesus, in the fullness of time, not only vanquished every foe on the cross, but then he also provided for us the very thing that we need for right standing in his presence, his full forgiveness and his perfect righteousness. And, you know, tying into what Dustin preached about last week, the antidote to fear that cripples so much of this world. We have it in that we know that this perfection that God has given us can never be taken away from us. It can never be corrupted. It can never be exhausted. It is ours. We have it eternally. He has saved us. And yet, and also on top of that, it's also the antidote for fear to those that don't know Christ yet. That we get to share this awesome news that you can have this too. Trust in the Lord Jesus. And you too will be covered by his righteousness. And so it's for that reason that we humbly bow in loving reverence to this God that we come and sing to every week. And we pray to and we trust our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, just providentially ordering uh, the writing of this incredible book of Romans that we might know truths that are almost too deep to, to understand in any comprehensive way. Thank you that in so many ways, Lord, you've also made it so simple that we can, we can trust you at your word and that we can just bask in, in celebration of all that you've done for us. Lord Jesus, we, we worship and we praise you. Thank you for being our superhero, Lord, and for rescuing us from uh, the fate that we knew was coming, and yet you've made us your own. And so once again, collectively, Lord, as your family, we just lift our voices in praise and worship to you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.